think it's so important for us as marketers to keep being that champion of the buyer's voice. I mean, they are really your third-party external marketers, your customers. In this episode, we're speaking with Karina Owens, Senior ABM Manager at Gong. With a background in education, Karina discovered quickly that people were her passion and that marketing presented the perfect blend of learning development styles and creative communication. Karina has a rock-solid foundational understanding of marketing principles, and I think that you'll find that her insights on account-based marketing are both tactical and strategic. Enjoy. How did you get into marketing in the first place? I actually, my background is in education. So I had a, a brief stint in teaching abroad um, and a little bit locally in the U.S. as well. But I also graduated at a time when there was a recession and um, I always kind of knew that I would do more than educating. Yeah, People are my passion and I really love communicating in different styles and different ways and accelerating people's growth potential. Uh, but there definitely isn't as much opportunity in the education field. Um, yeah. So I actually started at a private equity firm where I was working a ton with investors and helping to promote their latest fund at conferences and just found that like I was able to take that same, you know, learning development style combined with like my ability to communicate um, and found that marketing was kind of the perfect blend of creativity and communication as well as like analytics. Yeah. Uh, so I just kind of focused on that being my career trajectory and um, completely learned everything myself. Uh, you know, all the concepts of like SEO and branding and uh, pipeline, things of that nature. So um, it was an easy transition, but again, it was really that I saw that this blend of creativity and um, analytics as well, because I really do like to analyze and see results and see how I can improve. Uh, so yeah, that's that's my little story of how I got into marketing. That's so cool. Yeah, there, and there's so much crossover. When I first got into college, I was like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. Do I want to be, I know I'm creative, am I going to do art? But then artists generally don't make a lot of money, except with the exception of last year when the NFTs were crazy. And then it's like, okay, psychology, because I love trying to take apart how people think and the thought process behind decision making. It seemed like there was no clear option, but I wanted to do everything. And then marketing, it's a combination of so many so many different things. Almost every day there's a new kind of challenge and it always seems fresh. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think too, that there's a lot of the similar things you just talked about, like psychology, like that is very present in sales. So I also did dabble a bit with um, taking on a full sales role at one of the companies I led the marketing team at. And um, there was too much agenda, I think, with selling. And so I like that that agenda or the, the purpose with marketing and how you engage with other people is there's always an ROI we have to tie things to, but it's less 
dependent on me having a job the next day. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, t- I totally agree. I think marketing, like there's, I mean, just look at how many marketing roles we've created, customer marketing, partner marketing, product marketing. I mean, there's, it's all marketing, right? But we've, um, there's so many facets of the business we can touch with as being a marketer. So yeah, um, yeah that creative ability is, is, is definitely present. Yeah. One thing I want to talk to you about is how sometimes marketing can feel like art class. Let's make something that people within the company will be very happy about. Sometimes that doesn't align with what the buyer is trying to do. What's your take on refocusing efforts towards the buyer? Yeah, um, one of my most early like success stories with doing just that was working for a company where uh, the founder was the CEO and very much had a vision for how we wanted to pitch the product. Um, and we were actually pitching the product uh, with a term that was not being searched upon at all. So SEO really came into play here as well as like interviews with customers. And it was a hard push, especially very early in the role. I made that push to consider changing the way we speak about what we do and the product we're offering but um, using the data of not just what is the web telling me that people are actually searching for when they're looking to solve this problem, but what are our customers saying? What is the third-party analyst research firms? How are they describing it? And I think sometimes those things can be very obvious about why you should then change the terminology or way you pitch something. Um, but when you have founders that are so passionate and tied to their original vision, it can be quite difficult to overcome that. Um, right. But using that data, I think early and communicating it often, as well as through the lens of like empathy um, to the founder and their original mission. Um, that was one of my earliest signs of how important and crucial it is to present some hard truths uh, to the company, even if that's not you know what they may want to hear. You touched on so many super important, like fundamental marketing stuff, listening to the customer, making sure that you're reflecting the value in the words, potentially even the exact words that they're using. Personally, when I first got into marketing, I thought it was just like, let's have fun. And like, here's like a little, a little prompt, but let's run with it and go crazy. Lately, I've really been coming to realize it's not from the ivory tower. It's got to be a reflection of the buyer. If they could make the marketing for us, it would be better, probably. A, a thousand percent. Um, metadata just shared recently their approach to rebranding and how they actually gave their customer advisory board the landing page for their relaunch of how they're going to pitch their product. And they got incredible feedback, right? So I think it's so important for us as marketers to keep being that champion of the buyer's voice. Um, I mean, it's the data you can show with that, I think, is always going to lean in favor of the buyer because they're the ones consuming the product. They're the ones pitching the product in communities. Um, I mean, they are really your third party external marketers, your customers. So right. uh, making sure that they are bought in is crucial, but it's easy to say that. But I, it's very hard, I think, for marketers to really instill that in an organization. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard to even put it in practice. Typically, customer success and sales organizations, they always feel way closer to the customer than marketing. Even just by the organizational structure, marketing is kind of put into the ivory tower and we're like, hey, sales, what do you need? 
tell us. <laughs> We're not necessarily customer facing or buyer facing. So it, it can feel disconnected, even though we need to frame things in their terms. When are you going to actually interact with the customer? Well, and I think that's that's really the issue. Um, and I think that's why ABM is is so often not present in organizations or overlooked. I mean, really, ABM is an extension of the deal team in the buying process. Um, you know, even as ABM marketers, we're, we're kind of dealing with that ivory tower that you're talking about with maybe like content marketing or demand generation or digital. Um, so I think that um, that's why having that, because I've not always been an ABM disciplined marketer, but always understanding the importance of that connection um, has really started with fostering that relationship with sales. So I've always tried to not appear that way. And it's very intentional. It means that I'm in constant communication with them. Um, I'm keeping myself open to criticism, you know, that I didn't hit the mark. Um, and that involves me not having that ivory notion of my, you know, my end product is sacred and the vision and blah, blah, blah. It's so simple, these concepts, but they more often than not get missed. Um, you can have an incredible content external distribution strategy, but a terrible internal content distribution strategy. Yeah. If your own sales team just is going off that thread, if they don't know where to find the content or that it's out or how to use it or speak to it, you're missing such a crucial opportunity. So yeah, kind of went off on a tangent there. But yeah, it's a good tangent. Yeah. Sales enablement. That's kind of like one touch point where marketing and sales come together. It is interesting to, to see how different organizations handle this in different ways. Some companies they've been oftentimes like in the earlier stage of the company, it's been sales entirely. And maybe there's a couple of people in marketing who like help them make brochures or whatever. Uh, but it's like this company was built by sales. And then I think it's as the company matures, a common theme that you can see is that, okay, marketing can help those efforts so much, but it's that collision course when marketing tries to go into their world, but it's like, hey, we built the company. We're the reason that we're at this place right now. How do you think marketing teams and sales teams can navigate that transition from being really sales-led to looking at sales enablement and even marketing being able to elevate their performance from even when they were before? I think it's really a top-down initiative. Um, and it's not that the... the the C-level has to fully understand marketing, but they do have to champion marketing. Um, and I think that that means that CMO or not, like the entire marketing organization has to be speaking in terms of business impact, company impact, right? And not right. just marketing impact. And I right. think that that's where we kind of silo ourselves too much when we only speak in our language or we only communicate things through our point of view, when you can have a collective narrative internally from a company that we're all bought into this singular mission, this is how we're going to attack it. These are the roles and responsibilities. All those lines get blurred and you actually are working towards one common goal with one common narrative. But if you keep operating in the same way you always said, it's going to be so much harder to get anything like another department marketing to really have a seat at the table or really make an impact. Along the same lines of that balance of sales and marketing in a buyer's journey, it seems to be that especially over the past 10 or 15 years that 
buyers and their behavior has dramatically shifted towards a self-led buyer journey. Many stats say 70% of the buyer's journey is complete even by the time they reach out to sales. It would stand to reason that marketing would be mostly responsible for that 70%. How do you see things evolving in this area? I'm really passionate about this area even before I knew that there was like a discipline around product-led growth, which is a lot of what I think you're hitting on. Um, And I've always worked at companies or most often have worked at companies where Uh, senior leadership is fearful about letting that process be kind of available to the masses, meaning like touring, doing a light tour of a product, um, getting visuals of a product, um, like anything that can actually tangibly have the buyer at more of an opportunity to have a seat at the table and less controlled by sales. They've been super resistant of, but it's just not something that I think that they can control anymore. And we have to be accepting of the fact that people are talking to their peers. They're likely seeing the product already and and the narrative is already not in your control. Right. Largely. What does this new landscape look like? How do both sales and marketing teams adapt to this new reality that the buyer is guiding this process? How do we support the buyer? How do we meet them? Like some people are talking about transparent pricing where if it's talk to sales, if you want to do an enterprise, but it's, Hey, this is the price. People are generally trying to rethink how can they gain a competitive advantage by accepting the fact that this is the new reality. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's what they have to do is they have to accept that they are not as in control of the buying process as they maybe once were. Um, Certainly, the move to digital selling from 2020 has just forever changed that. Um, You know, I think that a company that has a really solid narrative and they know the market they're supporting, they should have no challenges with being that transparent, whether that's opening up what it looks like to see the product, making it available and self-serve, whether that's doing like, you know, a freemium trial, um, or a guided product tour. I think that the companies that know where they fit and who their right fit customers are will open up that transparency and allow the buyer to control more of the process because they're also much more confident with um, who they're saying yes to and who they're not. So I think that when you have that narrative and you know uh, your product positioning you know, in and out and who you serve, I think those companies are going to be the ones to offer more flexibility for their buyers rather than forcing them into a path that's really company service and not buyer service. Yeah. One of the fears or one of the anxieties of the old paradigm is if we are transparent with the product, especially if we give too much value before they're a customer, then our competitors are going to steal it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, they're already, I mean, I think any competitor that is worth its snuff is, yeah, like they're, they're already doing that. Um, I mean, I think it's so funny when, when companies think that their competitors don't know who, you know, who their clients are, you know, like, oh, let's not even put the logos on the site because then the competitors will be aware. They're already aware. They're already talking to the same people you're talking to. Um, yeah, it's such a, 
it's a it's a fear-led approach to business. Um, and I think that that often shows the lack of confidence in your own mission or your own product. Um, so I think that, you know, marketers or salespeople go to a company that is like unafraid of the product or their offering and proud of the differentiators and also honest about where they're lacking. Um, you know, people are smart savvy buyers and it doesn't take even much to be a smart savvy buyer these days it just means reaching out to somebody and asking their thoughts and opinions or going to an online forum i mean <laughs> very little is uh private or sacred anymore yeah. so i think that companies that just embrace who they are like their buyers are going to gravitate towards that and more of the right fit buyers are going to gravitate towards that and that's what you want i mean retention I mean, everything, it all comes back to right fit. So if you can increase right fit, I mean, that's that's where it's at. It's kind of like in personal lives, I've actually gotten used to posting photos of myself or my family on Facebook. It took me a while to grapple with the idea that my life isn't entirely private. I guess companies kind of have to go through that as well. Yeah, and I do think that those that operate like that, uh, like more of a human brand quality, that's where you get those raving fans or that fandom is you're breaking that fourth wall essentially. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, I, at the end of the day, it's a completely overused thing, but humans buy from other humans. So the more companies can just be their full authentic self flaws and all, um, I think it's great. And we are definitely living in a culture that at times can want to chastise uh, flaws or mistakes. Um, but again, it's all about how you respond to that. Um, right. So it's, it's challenging for any person and it, there's, you know, more at stakes for companies or public facing companies. But I think while you can uh, fully own your company narrative and vision, um, we need more leaders that that make bold moves that do showcase a lot more vulnerabilities. Yeah. For that human to human side, I have a theory, but I don't know if it's true. So I'd love to know your thoughts about it. So here's a scenario. If you're looking at a B2B transaction that sometimes six figures, sometimes in million plus, this is a huge decision. Even though software as a service, software is the first word of, of SaaS, but software as a service, the software is part of and a reflection of the team behind the software. So if you have such a high value contract that you're considering entering, sometimes these these contracts are a year or two years, depending on the contract. Even if a product is missing a feature, and this is this is the case with huge enterprise deals, if you needed to have one feature added or something, and that was the deal breaker, likely they would just hire, hey, close the deal, we'll hire some engineers and we'll build out the feature, we'll put it on the roadmap. Not a big deal. So it's almost like the product is kind of secondary and the people that you're going to be working with over that course of one or two years is a lot more important. Those are my observations, but I don't know if that's true. Do buyers actually care about that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's true for me as a buyer and I it's how I operate like in the seat of a seller as well. I mean, if you just think about it on the most basic human human level, um, 
Like compare it to getting married, right? You're not just marrying the person in front of you. You're marrying their family and their relatives and their friends and their neighbors. Like you're, you're getting a part of a whole life that gets harder and harder to untangle. So the more you actually expose people to different areas of your company, I'm constantly encouraging people to expose them to customer marketing early and often. So they then know what it's going to be like to be a customer or expose them to if IT is getting involved, expose them to the peer on our side so that they can speak their language and build those connections. The more you can create that web of human connections, the harder it's going to be to untangle. Uh, they're going to carry that experience with them, you know, of course, from job to job, but also it just, it, it, it makes it beyond just the product, which has lim limitations to your point too, and could take longer to develop. Um, I think too many sales people can get caught up in owning and having an iron grip on the relationship, but I would trust that your company is hiring talented, smart, capable, connected individuals and just bridging that relationship um, goes a long way, not just from like signature, but to the lifelong value of the client as well. This is absolutely true. For these larger deals and these large companies who are integrating the software, they are deeply embedding this into their workflow. It's getting grafted into part of their company. That transaction, I think this is really the core of what I'm trying to understand. It's almost like a lot of B2B marketing organizations treat this as a transaction when it really should be more like a relationship, especially when you're talking about embedding the software, grafting the software into the, the company who's purchasing it for one or two or three years and it's core to what they're doing as a business, this is not like buying a pair of sneakers. That, that phrase, extension of our team. If you were to build it in-house, you probably would, but why would you do that when someone else has already done it? So it just becomes another arm of the company purchasing or buying into the software as a service. And that's why it's so smart to really niche fast, like really get involved with a particular industry that you start to learn, like there's repeatable patterns from company to company with slight differentiators, but a lot of companies try to be everything for everyone. And it's, it's doing them a disservice because they're trying to put somebody in a box that fits this template in this pattern um, across like too many disciplines or industries. But you're, you're so right. And I think we need to have a lot more realistic expectations about the enterprise selling motion because it is so complex and there are so many decision makers and red tape and regulations. And it really does take conscious time and effort to understand those different roles and responsibilities and how they operate and what are, their, what are they up against. Um, but to your point earlier too about retention, it's the best way, especially now, to be thinking about how to approach selling. Um, if you're going to start with one team, why not also use this opportunity to learn about other teams and how you can impact them? Because to your point about, you know, the earlier point, it's going to get so much harder to untangle if you're embedded at far more reaching aspects of the company rather than being just that nice to have for that right. maybe one individual buyer or that one team. Yeah. And I do encourage even in my own team, when we're looking at buying technology, I've found that my own peers 
don't holistically look at including me or other teammates in the buying process. And it's setting them up for failure because we're not going to be as inclined to adopt the techno- adopt the technology into our process. Um, and it, it's just so funny. I think, uh, I think people just forget how to look at the bigger picture too often. Um, and again, it's this seemingly very simple advice, but even at the most mature organizations, there's not even like a clear process on how to buy or how to incorporate your other team members in the process. So um, you're making really solid points that I think that, uh, especially in these current times, we need to be much more mindful of as buyers and sellers. Yeah. What you said about need to have versus nice to have got me thinking about these rumblings of a downturned economy. Let's start cutting back. Almost like a knee-jerk response to any chatter like that is let's cut back on all of our long-term strategy and let's focus our efforts on short-term gains. Mm-hmm. Right. I was thinking about something you said on a, I can't remember whose podcast it was on, but you were talking about being able to focus on buyers who are not in market right now. So this is pipeline like a year away. You're not going to see any immediate return focusing on building that. So what would be your take for companies if they are looking into a downturn economy? How would you say to kind of balance the short term versus the longer term investments? Yeah, a tough call for me to make, but I think I would... I would err on the side of identifying swim lanes or redefining what the swim lanes are for your team. Focusing on the long-term and the 95% of buyers that are not in market right now is very much a marketing discipline. And what we should be focused on is educating less on selling. And I think too often these days we're putting marketing in a box where because we've gotten more of a seat at the table, because even technology is pushing more of this idea that marketing, you know, is responsible for X percent of pipeline or close one business. And I'm not saying we shouldn't impact it, but the, the lack of clear swim lanes in organizations, I think sets you up for failure, both with short-term and largely long-term. So I think that people should, or people in these organizations really need to be considering why they shouldn't count out marketing or what is that loss gain or ROI, um, and organizations that clearly have clear, clear defined goals and clearly uh, have identified swim lanes of their, their employees will be best suited to make it out in the best way possible. But there's going to be a lot of companies that are still figuring that out, um, definitely in like the startup phase. And so that'll be more challenging. Um, so not saying it's easy, but um being able to quickly adapt and identify what team owns what uh, in these times is going to be more crucial than ever. Yeah. What about an economy that's not downturned, just normal run of the mill economy? How would you approach that balance between engaging potential buyers who are not in market today, but could be in a year or two? Yeah. You know, a lot of what I talk about with ABM in general is that you have to do the unscalable before you can scale. And I think also being able to quickly identify in any kind of program um, that you're running, 
don't like double down on what's working and just cut out the rest because the rest is truly noise. So being able to really look at data and see what is moving the, the needle and that can be an awareness play, right? It doesn't have to be it's this hard see, you know, goal of revenue. That's always the North Star, but really being able to look and quickly adapt at your data is going to be what helps you. So yes, there are things that are not going to be quite scalable yet, but I do think that more organizations need to be comfortable with testing out new channels or new theories or new messaging and being able to quickly say like, okay, this is what's working. Let's zero in on this. Um, yeah, I mean, hard, hard decisions to make, but we definitely need more, uh, we need to have more conversations, I think, about what is truly working and what is not working and be comfortable even within our own organization to have those honest candor moments yeah. and not have that just be for, you know, conversation sake, but truly then acting upon that information. Totally. In the measuring what is working, in my experience, oftentimes when someone uses that phrase, what's working, they're usually talking about short term gains. How do you demonstrate something being efficient or actually you can say this is working for something that you may not see turn into pipeline for a year or or even just like a quarter or two? It's, for me, it comes back to, um, you know, I'm constantly asking in organizations I'm at, what is the ultimate goal as a business we're trying to drive and where does marketing fit into that? And then I think about, well, where does my role or my team's role fit into that? And how can we constantly be, you know, working towards a unified goal? Um, and that's, I think, starts with clearly defined goals, roles, and responsibilities, followed by actually sharing the results of that. Um, and that could be on a monthly basis. That can be on a quarterly basis. But everything's got to be set up to actually report on those as well. Um, and I think too often marketers especially are thrown new ideas and new concepts and put in a position to execute quickly. And there's not a lot of thought behind, well, why are we executing? Why are we doing this? How does this tie back to the ultimate company goal or initiative? Um, and then we just become like uh, tact tactics, right? Like yeah. we're just becoming people that are constantly performing tactics for the sake of tactics. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely way too much vanity metrics, I think, in marketing. And I think we just keep them there. To your point, they certainly could be used to point to a signal of like, oh, you know what? We didn't realize this, but this particular flow on the website, like that's what's actually driving people to the desired goal of requesting a demo as an example, right? right. But too often we just kind of get comfortable with X downloads, X visits, and not tying it to the broader organization initiative. And I know I might be beating that with a dead horse, but you're not moving the needle when you're just reporting for the sake of reporting. If it's not actually tying to a business outcome, then you're doing your own self a disservice too. When we're talking about the internal marketing experience, oftentimes kind of siloed from what the buyer could be experiencing. The buyer's on the receiving end of what marketing organizations put together. So like the classic example is gate versus ungate. The gate is there because we need to get that email and we want to say that we captured X number of MQLs. 
So that's that serves the internal marketing organization. From the buyer's perspective, they could be in, put in a position where they're like, "Hey, I just want to learn how to like move forward with my problem," and this company has a gate and this one doesn't. I don't really feel like using my dummy email right now and get spammed and then the SDR thing. So I'm going to just go over here and consume content and learn and start developing a relationship with this other company who doesn't gate. Some companies kind of take a, like some people get a little too extreme, like never ever gate anything. That's kind of silly. There's there's very few absolutes in this world. And I really do question any marketer that when you see somebody talk like that, Use it as a red flag. Like it's probably pretty one self-serving that they're pushing yeah. this narrative, right? Yeah. And two, just how could that possibly again? Like, how could one size fits all work for every organization? Right. Yeah. In in I, all circumstances. Right, right, right. No, it's madness. Um, I mean, I think that what I would go back to is you know for a company that's needing to prove MQLs. The internal marketing team should be asking, why do I need to prove MQLs? And hopefully what you'll uncover is, well, there's this pattern of, you know, we had a thousand MQLs and so we correlated that to, you know, X percent one or what have you. Like try and go backwards. Like why is that even necessary? If you can prove that you have a thousand MQLs and, you know, 1% of them actually turns into a qualified opportunity then is the MQLs you really need or was it that 1% that you should be focusing on? And then let's work backwards. Well, how do we get that 1%? What what were they doing? What was their activity before they got to that? But nobody's really had enough of those conversations, I think. And that often goes back to because, well, they're not even set up to report on these things, right? And so that's why people sometimes even use Gates because they're using it just as a way, to your earlier point, to self-service the internal marketing team to hit this number. You can do plenty of things with technology and money um, without doing a gate. Um, so it's just, it's, it's again, going backwards and thinking holistically, like what, what are we really trying to drive? And is this way we've operated the best way to operate? Do we operate this way because we had misconceived notions? Did we operate this way because this was the tool stack we had at the time? Like so many ways to unpack that, but yeah. Um, largely you got to figure out what works for your business and you'll be able to determine from there what is the right thing to do is it to ungate or not yeah. gate, as an example yeah and there's absolute kind of way of saying things there's people who go on linkedin who are like gates are dead <laughs> mqls <laughs> dead, dead. <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah now i it's great to have a point of view and a strong one at that. But uh, I think if you unpack a lot of these LinkedIn posts or, you know, these, these thought leaders, can you get to a meat of what they're saying? Can you get to what are their personal experiences? Does it sound too much like what you've already heard from other tech vendors or service providers? Like really dissect, I mean, this goes beyond marketing, but really dissect the information you're looking at. There's always intent. And if you can get to what you think the intent is, like there's your answer more often than not. Yeah. You could probably make the case that many times RFPs are a waste of time and resources, but sometimes they can lead to very large deals. What's really interesting about the RFP cycle is that for an account to go out to bid, 
the cycle could be three, five years. Sometimes they don't even decide not to even go out to bid because they're happy with who they got. Right. And it's a, a little bit of a bloated process uh, with multiple rounds and a lot of people. And it's a little bit of a game because are you really going out to bid or do you have to go out to bid and you're like not actually going to choose somebody new? So it's complex. But sometimes you're in a position where this company who's going out to bid, they actually have, they've been working with a vendor for a while and they're really honestly rethinking, do we want to try to go with a different vendor this time? I think this is the perfect scenario to demonstrate the value of investing in the awareness channel. Say a company goes out to bid in 2022, they weren't in market in 2019. You had three years to build up trust, any sort of impression so that by the time you get there, actually, we really want to go with these guys now. I I feel like that's a perfect example of how investing in in the short term will never show that because they weren't in market for three years. But at that point when they're making a huge decision can make an incredible impact on the business. If you didn't invest in the non-in-market marketing activities and potentially even sales activities, then you wouldn't have a foundation in that moment when you really wish that you did. Oh, what you're describing is a lot of how I've structured my awareness content is actually taking RFPs because by and large, they're not very different, especially if you're looking at one industry or another, like pretty standard. There's going to be very few differences between one company's RFP and another. Um, Because largely they're also basing it off of like large industry firms like Gartner or Forrester and what they're telling them should be in an RFP. So you already know largely what these RFPs are going to look like three years before the company comes to you, to your point. So structure your content to speak exactly to those bullet point needs and use it as an opportunity to differentiate differentiate yourself. So maybe there's a line in the RFP that's just been standard and hasn't been revisited in a decade. Challenge the notion of that specific requirement. Like if that fits you, why are you even thinking about whether or not your, this is a bad example, but whether or not your software is on cloud versus, you know, SaaS right. or, or on-premise. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, it's so important to, to, for marketers to, pay attention to the sales process through as much of a lens as an RFP, because these are the resources that to your point, like they're going to need them anyways. Why not already arm your market with that knowledge and the differentiation you can put on that ahead of time. Um, But I love that you even mentioned RFPs because they're just, they're so often not even discussed in marketing and we have such an opportunity to, uh, educate our market, knowing what the buyer has already told us and knowing that it's not going to be largely different from one company to the next. What really got me thinking is every single time I'm brought in for an RFP, it's like emergency. <laughs> it's, it's always like right, a last right, second right. thought. Y'all, we had three years to do this. <laughs> like what? Right. No, yeah. 100%. Um, it's, Again, I think like with most things, it's like a mundane thing that people don't want to do. It's not a fun thing to, to one, administer an RFP, evaluate it or complete it yourself. Like it's not fun for anybody. But again, this is where marketing can come in and have some real business impact. Create a content library full of the different RFP, you know, common things that you know are going to come up. That way sales can not be as, you know, 
emergency with you about it. Um, and then also just keep refining it and retuning it. The more information you collect when you realize like, ah, this really stuck out to this vendor when I gave them this material for this specific line item. Right. And then double down on that. Yeah. But one of the reasons I even reached out to you for this podcast was to talk about video content, specifically video content that's just repackaged Zoom calls. I would love to know your thoughts on how companies can rethink this medium. You know, you can read a ton of articles are like, video is the future and look how... 80% of the internet traffic is video. All the stats and everything, they say video is a great medium. But then to the point of like everything we're talking about today, is this really helping the buyer? A lot of times not. Just like any other form of content. Yeah. And I think too, this idea of video content is derived from different platforms, like social platforms that are now showing you that, hey, the algorithm is going to favor you more if you upload this versus this. And that's why you end up with garbage content, in my opinion, which is just lazy for the sake of it, repurposing. Um, you have to ask yourself, why? Why are, you, why are we doing this? And you can have the selfish goal of getting more followers and reviews to, you know, beat the algorithm or play, play along with the algorithm. But if you really are trying to educate your audience or make send a message with your audience, think about the medium you're choosing. And if it really makes a difference for it to be video versus audio versus text, I mean, um, you could also survey your audience. It's something that people just don't do enough of. Like you may assume that that's what they want because that's what's trending. But is that really what your audience wants? And it's more likely than not... <laughs> not going to be helpful for you to just keep following along with what everybody else is doing, which is what I was starting to see happening on LinkedIn is that everybody and their mother was just uploading a little side by side or just them talking at the screen, some with audio text overlay, some without, but that was pretty much the only variation I was right. seeing of video content on LinkedIn in particular. Yeah. And I just don't really subscribe to that to, to just follow along with what everybody else is doing for the sake of it. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, anything I do, like I, I, I'm doing it intentionally and for a reason and it can impact one person and that's absolutely fabulous. Totally. Like it so that's not my personal, you know, way I go about promoting myself on different uh, platforms, but by and large, you always need to question yourself when you're creating this content. Like, why am I creating it? What is the purpose I'm trying to, to get at? Yeah. And then, then you'll probably find what channel and what medium. And even just reviewing my own media consumption habits. If I'm scrolling through LinkedIn and I see that a video in that format that you're talking about, headline, person speaking, and then I'm just <laughs> like, unless the headline is hyper relevant to something that I'm right. experiencing right now, if I'm almost passively looking for something to solve my problem. But if it's totally left field, it's not relevant to me at all. I have no interest in looking into it. And that's that's one of the things about an intent channel like Google. How do I fix my toilet? I will watch yeah. a 20-minute video that's terribly produced by a country bumpkin who knows how to fix toilets. I'll right. happily watch a 20 minute video because this is hyper relevant to what I need to accomplish right now. 
Yeah. Versus well, LinkedIn is just like random feed stuff. Whatever pops yeah. up, who cares? You're hitting on a couple of points, which is like one, the concept of LinkedIn. When I polled like my own audience about this topic, they all overwhelmingly, I think except for one or two people, said that they prefer text. Well, why? Because the channel was designed for that. It was designed to optimize text scrolling. Like that's what your brain is wired to think when you're on LinkedIn. I think with a medium like Google, a how-to, like with especially the, the plumbing, the toilet, that is going to favor video form content like on YouTube. Your brain is ready to accept that type of content. So you have to really dissect like what was the intention of these platforms? What are they... What are they really favoring? What do they program in an individual to expect? Like yeah. TikTok, no brainer. Like it's video. You're yeah. expecting to watch video and you're expecting to be enticed by that video within like a matter of five or seconds because it's designed yeah. to keep you scrolling and scrolling. Yeah. So to your point too about headline, whether that's like auditory or text, like think about the, <laughs> the perspective of even yourself, like we're all so easily programmed and we all get accustomed to particular style of behaving in life and online. Um, so think about that. Like uh, even just sit yourself in the experience for a second and analyze like, what am I already wired to do? So yeah. Um, yeah. TikTok is a platform that I go to on occasion. It's currently uninstalled from my phone. I can't handle it. But it's a, lot. it's a lot to dig in. Um, yeah. It's like it's like candy and yeah. uh, or like if you open up like a can of Pringles and you're just like, um, 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 and then it's mm-hmm. before you know it's it, mindless. the Pringles are gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's I would love to like pick the brains of the, the, the creators because it's and I forget it was actually acquired by another company. I'm blanking on the name, but I mean, they completely honed in on like the style, like we're all going to be getting it from our phones. Whereas even LinkedIn, like LinkedIn's actually predominantly browser. So you have to think about that. Right. Um, like on a desktop. Yeah. There's just, it's, it's crazy how much like we started this with the concept of psychology and like why that really made you gravitate towards marketing. Yeah. And, and that's really what it is. Yeah. It's unpacking like how to tap into the psychology of every little thing we're doing. Yeah. Uh, whether that's holding a phone and how we operate on that and knowing your app is going to live and breathe on that yeah. versus being at a desktop. So yeah, it's, um, it's not rocket science. And I hate to say that because I think that, that then kind of diminishes like what you and I do as professionals, but it's not, but it is, it is intentional and it is, you have to be, to be a great marketer. I think you have to be very intentional about what you're doing, when you're doing and how you're doing it. And I understand how simple that sounds, but I also understand that it's not really put into practice a whole lot. Yeah. Marketing fundamentals. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you got any value from this podcast, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. All right, see you guys in the next one. Thank you.